Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Monday, the 15th day of May in 2023. Yes, we are a couple of minutes late because the Ring Brothers, Ding and Dong, uh, were using the wrong link to get in, apparently. But here's the good news. We're all here. We're ready to go. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, we have a really good episode lined up for y'all today. So I want to start with Paul Spencer. And Paul, I'm going to, where'd you go? I'm going to throw you right there up to the top, as they say in, in, in New York. I'm going to throw you to the top. <laughs> All right. So last week, we didn't get an opportunity to talk about what was going on with the Mayo Clinic? And I think that's something that's really important for us to uh, get out of the way first and foremost. And then I know Terry wants to talk about some other uh, current events going on and some things that um, are, are pending. And then I want to jump into a couple of uh, really interesting things. So to each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on and hanging out with us on this uh, fantastic Monday, welcome we're excited to have y'all here. And Paul, take it away. So uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, and thank you for the updated link. Uh, so uh, what we have in the state of Minnesota is legislation that's about to be passed that governs uh, nursing coverage within healthcare facilities. And as you might have guessed, uh, there's a small little health system in Rochester, Minnesota called the Mayo Clinic that some of you might have heard of that are pushing back against legislation on that. Uh, one thing that we have to take into account in the healthcare industry, uh, now that the health emergency finally ended last Thursday, is that now we kind of have to look upon the wreckage of the uh, healthcare industry and see for ourselves uh, that low staffing tends to be the norm. And, you know, there are hospitals out there that are having trouble staffing people. We have an unemployment rate that is now the lowest in 70 years uh, across many different uh, measures. And it's becoming very competitive in order to keep the healthcare uh, staffing that uh, people expect. And now, CMS did change the residency rules uh, a handful of years ago to make certain that residents were not on uh, uh, a single shift for a long period of time. And, uh, you know, I think overall, I think that's led to better medical decision making uh, rather than a resident that's been on for 20 straight hours and attempting to make uh, medical decisions, uh, even though there's a preceptor there. Uh, and the same goes for nursing. I mean, uh, we can't say enough about registered nurses and what they just went through in the public health emergency. Uh, but there are going to be conversations like this, not just in the state of Minnesota, but nationally, about what constitutes 
healthy staffing and what options uh, hospital systems and major healthcare providers in the state are going to be able to have at their disposal in order to make certain that healthcare coverage in a hospital setting is going to be in a, at an acceptable level and where and what constitutes that acceptable level and understanding that when we get to uh, cases of rural healthcare that was incredibly challenged by the uh, pandemic now uh, shifting to an endemic uh, what it looks like for those facilities as well so you know one of the things that i think about right and there's no doubt you know the the public health emergency wreaked havoc on the healthcare industry um, from a lack of preparedness to a lack of dependency on china for our uh, protective gear um, to the dismantling if you will of clinical teams over vaccinations and i'm not getting into a conversation about vaccinations it's done it's over the public health emergency is over here's the question all of these nurses all of these clinical professionals who lost their jobs over the vaccinations during the phe are they going to get their jobs back now that the public health emergency is over are they going to get brought back in because of the significant decrease in decline in nurses and in clinical staff? I mean, interesting question. I mean, Paul, you know, this was really something that you were, you know, on top of. I mean, what are your, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, it, it's a much different uh, uh, landscape than what we had entering the pandemic. Uh, you know, taking into account the unemployment rate and where it sits right now, it's not a matter of do I go back to the facility that I just left? It's who's got the best price for me to join that facility and who's got that uh, best continuing budget to go on to that facility. And, uh, and, and I tell you what, uh, there are going to be some health systems. Uh, and I think of uh, the ascensions of the world. We're yep. going to have a really tough time staffing because they cannot compete wage-wise. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And you know, Terry, you know, we we get an opportunity to send um, messages to each other throughout, you know, the um, throughout this live stream. You know, one of the things that I, you know Terry brought up, and I think it's a very valid and very good point, is will some of these clinical professionals want to go back to the facilities that they were publicly shamed or dismissed from i mean that's an important question you know i i, I remind people all the time regardless of what your personal beliefs are as far as vaccination you have to remember these first responders run towards emergency when everybody else is running away from them and you know the way that nurses and, and some of these doctors were treated in the middle of the pandemic highly problematic highly problematic terry any quick thoughts uh, no i i absolutely agree and that that was my comment in the chat i also see rachel anderson who's also a coder and a nurse that posted the same thing she said do they even want their jobs back the way nurses were thrown aside and you know the one thing that that 
I saw that I thought people just seemed to miss is that before we had vaccines, before there was mandates, before there was the, the masking, all that, our frontline workers were with very sick people for a year. And they, we weren't hearing any kind of statistics about them getting sick. They were either getting a mild case or, um, and, and that was giving immunity. And I, I know we don't want to get into this because that wasn't no. our topic today, but all I'm saying is that then all of a sudden when the, when the mandates came out, they were saying, you have to get it or you lose your job. And, you know, and, and Paul, to Paul's point that he just put in our chat is burnout is also a really big deal, yep. but just pivoting a little bit, the traveling nurses that are saying, you know what, you guys weren't very nice to me. So I'm going to go find some places that can actually use me. They're the ones that are actually making just a killing out there. Um, I was actually asked to come out of retirement twice during the pandemic um, as an RN and say, you know, can you help us? And I'm like, I did that before. I'm good. I'm in the administrative end of it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing what I need to do as my part teaching telehealth and trying to wade through all the regulatory changes. So I'm good, but it's been crazy just, you know, seeing what's going on out well, there. Well, hey, Scott. But, yeah, Scott, let me come to you because I know you have some thoughts about this as well. And then again, I, I want to move away from, you know, this topic, which could be very polarizing. And it's not because I'm afraid to take on these topics. I just think the pandemic is over. Hospitals and health systems have to try to figure out how do they right the wrongs and how do they bring back or identify new you know, new people to come in and fill the gaps. But Scott, let me give it to you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Terry made a lot of the points that <clears throat> I was going to mention. Uh, you know, I think that because we're not in a public health emergency right now, we really shouldn't be in a public health emergency footing when it comes to like hiring staff for one thing, right? Like I, there were reasons that things happened uh, within the last three years ago, two years ago. And, and you know, that's a separate debate, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me uh, that, we should be on that footing. And, and I think, you know, going back to the points that some other people have made, you know, traveling nurses are making a pretty significant sum of money right now. And, you know, in a free market, there are reasons why people may not want to be traveling nurses, whether it's the travel, uh, you know, people have uh, families and community roots and things like that. But, you know, if you have a chance to go and make a significant sum of money, I think a lot of people are doing that. And I think some of it does tie into the ill feelings around some of the things that happened uh, a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, a second part of it that I think um, is related, but almost is entirely separate from that conversation. Um, you know, Christine had made a comment in, in our chat about people going into other fields entirely. Like at some point, there's a level of abusiveness that you subject people to, not us in person. But a lot of these nurses, a lot of these staff members have been subject to a, like a torrent of abuse like in their work. And there, there comes a point where, you know, if all things are being equal financially, you know, nobody I think wants to wake up and go to work every day and do, do their best. I mean, to the point that was made earlier, people who literally step into, you know, risky life-threatening situations, right? Like whatever your opinion about vaccines, if you don't get a vaccine and you're willing to say, I will still go be a frontline nurse, like in a hospital, there's something to be said for that, right? But if you're getting just nonstop abuse, it's a little bit of a different calculation, I think. And I, and I think, look, I, I don't want to go too far with that, but that's a societal issue as well. Just a lot of just fundamental respect that people would like to, you know, people like to be respected, whether they're at work or not. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, Stephanie, um, nursing homes, right? 
So obviously, you know, we can't forget about what happened in nursing homes throughout the public health emergency. Um, and, and, and I just don't want to go there. But one of the things that I think is extremely interesting, and you reminded me of this, um, we have a client who, because of the shortages in nursing staff and clinical staff at these skilled nursing facilities and nursing facilities, they have purchased robots. And they have programmed the robots. And I'm going to stop there because I want you to share that um, with our listeners about what what these robots are actually doing. Yeah, so I know it sounds a little crazy, especially when we talk about tech and all of that. But what they're doing is they're seeing that from the clinical perspective, they don't even feel comfortable that their patients are being checked on daily. So what they're, do, what they're doing is they're going to have these robots going into the room and interacting with the patients to ask questions to get those, you know, daily updates from the patient about how they're feeling. Um, one of the things and, you know, the challenges that that brings about is now they have added cost. And a lot of times, too, I, I don't know if everybody realizes this, but with a lot of nursing homes, providers tend to be staffed by outside organizations. So they're not employed directly by the facility where they're treating patients. So the question becomes in the background, what is facility responsibility, which they're usually the ones who are employing all of the clinical staff, the nurses, and then just the providers are typically staffed from a different organization. So What's happening um, with more, I would say, than just this one client of ours is that they're finding that there's a gap from the clinical side. It would technically be a facility problem, but they're either saying, you know, oh, we're not addressing it or they can't address it. Um, one of the other things we're finding is that due to the nursing turnover, um, they are not able to bring in new staff that have the same level of training that's required to be comfortable that the nurses are, you know, monitoring correctly or especially with wound care and things like that. So there's different ways that, you know, these provider groups are having to pick up this responsibility just to make sure that clinically the patients are covered from their perspective even when it doesn't match up from a billing perspective or reimbursement perspective. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to understand that the reason why our client is doing this is not for financial gain. It's because yeah. there's genuinely a lack of um, clinical staffing at these nursing facilities. And they are responsible for the wound care of these patients. They're responsible also for the primary care of these patients. And, you know, this is an opportunity for them to be able to quickly, you know, understand through the patients who are capable of touching the screen where it says, how do you feel today? You know, great, good, bad, horrible, whatever it may be. And they could quickly get that that information back to them. Now, if you have a patient who inadvertently hits the wrong button, that could create some issues. But these are not being done for um, reimbursement uh, no. purposes. And one last thing, Sean, that I forgot yeah. to mention, some of the technology we're seeing, which, like Sean said, that, that particular robot thing, it's not billable. We're not saying, hey, there's a new charge to bill for robots. But... Um, 
just be aware that some of the tech out there that is not necessarily FDA cleared or approved yet can actually go into a space and get things like the patient's vitals and stuff like that through Bluetooth technology. So they don't even have to touch the patient um, and they'd be able to get some of the same vitals and things like that, that nurses hopefully would be able to do, but in a lack of, of that, you know, have another option. Yeah. And again, that's not always billable either because we're finding that they don't have the full FDA approval at this point. That's right. All right. So I want to jump into a topic. Um, I got to um, engage with Robert Lyles and Ashley Morgan last week of Lyles Parker. And if you missed this conversation, um, honestly, uh, to date, it's probably my favorite individual podcast that I've been able to do because it was just such a dynamic conversation. And Robert and Ashley are not like some attorneys who shy away from really saying what it is. Um, they went straight at it. And I want to talk a little bit about something because I know we have a, 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 a good audience going right now. And this is a topic to me that is extremely important. So there is, there is something called an ad quick. It's an administrative qualified independent contractor. Now the ad quick comes in after level three of the administrative law judge hearing <clears throat> or appeal, if you will. So remember we have the redetermination, the reconsideration, the ALJ, and then you have what's called a Medicare Appeals Council or Departmental Appeal Board. And then obviously you can go to federal district court. Now, for me, and, and, and I need all of you who are out there that do audits and appeals to really stay with me on this one because this is so critical. So level two is a reconsideration appeal, and it's done by a QIC, a qualified independent contractor. This is a third-party organization that has bid on a contract to be able to um, process and adjudicate denials from the redetermination level. Now, if you have a partially favorable or you have a wholly unfavorable and you meet the financial threshold to go to the administrative law judge appeal, you, even if you prevail at level three, the ALJ, there's no guarantee that the ruling of the judge will stand because there is this entity <clears throat> called an ADQIC, A-D-Q-I-C. This ADQIC, there's a conflict of interest, and this has been pointed out now by the Office of Inspector General, and I hope they do something about it. The AdQuick is owned by the same company that owns the QIC Level 2. Now, one of them, Maximus, actually divested their company, but now we're trying to find out who the new owner is and whether or not it was a simple spinoff. Don't know, but we're, we're digging to find out. Now, what happens here is if you receive a wholly favorable from an administrative law judge, or even if it's a partial favorable, 
This ad quick performs a quote unquote independent review to determine whether or not the judge properly applied Medicare law to their ruling. And what we have seen is that they are calling into question on findings that go against the level two quick. They are appealing these to the departmental appeal board and they are making allegations against these Medicare judges at the Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals. And they are CCing the chief administrative law judge, uh, MacArthur um, Allen, to all of these, which I know he is not pleased with. He can't be pleased with having his judges' decision-making on the law called into question. And here's the other thing to remember about an ALJ hearing. These are de novo. That means they are not bound to any prior precedent. They are not bound to any prior ALJ rulings. But yet, these ad quicks are pointing out that they violated Medicare law. And it's absolutely egregious. So even if you win at the ALJ level, you have to wait 60 days to understand whether or not there's going to a, there's going to be an appeal to this departmental appeal board so you have to wait 60 days all right keep this in mind in 2023 right in 2023 it's been reported that 95% of providers who did not prevail at the reconsideration level right that's level two, chose not to appeal the decision to the administrative law judge level. 95%, can you, like, I'm having a hard time understanding how only 5% of those who went to level two in, and, and didn't get either a wholly favorable or a partial favorable how 95% of these folks or only 5% are appealing to the ALJs. I just don't get it. Um, so I, I, I don't want to take a whole lot of time away from our uh, panel discussion today. If you did not get a chance to listen to the podcast last week, uh, it was on Thursday. Uh, it was the Legal with Lyles Parker segment. You got to please go listen to this, especially if you're a, a consultant, if you're an attorney, if you are an auditor or the compliance professional within your organization or the administrator or the senior physician. You've got to listen to this episode to understand what is an ad quick and how do you handle the situation when they call the judge's ruling into question. So, I'll stop there. I only took a few minutes from the segment. I hope that, you know, y'all are uh, understanding what I was talking about and why it's so concerning. And I'm just wondering how many of you actually knew that there was an ad quick. And if you didn't, now you know. All right. So with that said, I want to shift gears to something much more pleasant and, and pleasing. 
I want to switch to our good friend Christine Hall. And I know you had quite the bit of uh, excitement in your email tone this morning about some of the topics that you wanted to take on. So let's jump in and let's start picking these things apart one by one. Well, I am having some PTSD and I don't know if everybody else is. I feel like the last couple of months um, almost resonates with March 2020 when we had change upon change upon change. Um, I felt during that time that I was giving advice that was coming in and within hours sometimes they were changing that advice and they being CMS or HHS or um, even in the, the most recent case, the DEA changing information that had been provided to us about the onset of the PHE. We're having that same change of advice at the end of the PHE also. So Terry shared with me a couple of days ago that there was even more information that came in kind of post ending of PHE regarding telehealth place of service that I know has been a really big question. Uh, a lot of people have been asking, do we continue with 11 and 95? Do we continue? Do we go to place of service two, place of service 10? So many changes that we weren't expecting. I know that I have a timeline that that started with last year's um, are we still PHEing? <laughs> Jordan, that's so cute. We're not PHEing, but we're still kind of PHEing because first we had the final rule that came out last year that said, you know, we're going to extend these 151 days post PHE. And then Consolidated Appropriations Act came in in uh, late December, January and said, no, 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 we're going to extend it out to the uh, 2024. And then uh, we had the OCR say, well, we need to extend the uh, the way that we perform telehealth. And then after that, we had DEA come in and say, well, I think that we need to extend allowing um, certain controlled substances to be continued for another 90 days, I think it is, till November 11th, right, Terry? Yep, yeah. So again, once once again, we find ourselves in that same spot where things are changing and they're changing so very quickly for us. Well, and I think the other thing is too, and, and just chime in here, is the fact that um, we have also commercial plans that are changing their mind and updating their information and getting a little crazy. Um, and also back to Medicare real quick, uh, last week on the 11th, just Thursday, they put out some more information when it came to um, the changes and the updates. And one thing I like to, to mention, and I think Scott and Stephanie and I have had this conversation, I think even Christine and I, there's something called CMS speak, <laughs> uh, Medicare speak, meaning that they love to say, look what we did. And then they put things in and say, okay, now here's the punchline, but they're not clear on it. With the thing with, with Christine was saying, the uh, May 11th, they said something about the place of service, 02 and 10, and it just showed how these new you know place of services are there and and they're valid and Medicare wants them, but they but they don't say anything about weight. They just said in the CAA 2023 that you're not supposed to use that and through you know 2024 for a temporary fix of still using the place of service where you are, you know, whatever. And that's really hard on our clients because the physicians, the clients, the billers, the coders out there, all of you on the podcast are saying, 
But wait, Christine and Terry, I know you've taught 50 uh, tele telehealth conferences in the last month. You said this on the second, this on the fifth, this on the 10th. What the heck? And so, you know, it just, it just to this point, it's almost comical. But I have to bring up something that Stephanie sent me last week, and I'm still laughing. I actually thought she was just being funny. As we know, Stephanie is truly a card. But here is something that came up in Chapter 9. And Stephanie, I'm going to throw it to you after this because I just thought this was hilarious. Chapter 9 of the United Healthcare um, Policy. And she said, oh, Terry, take a look at this. And it's buried. It's it's like on page 100 and something in this whole uh, United Healthcare Policy. And it's like the six bullet down. And it says, offer telehealth services. So this is something they're going to allow in a clean yet private space and not in vehicles or public spaces. So... Stephanie brought up a good point, and I think uh, in a conference I was in on Saturday with Christine, with Dor Doris Brinker, a good co uh, colleague of ours, she said, you know, they only put these in there if there's something that they've experienced. So Stephanie, I'll throw it back to you. They must have had something that said, <laughs> somebody's using a, a dirty car, but <laughs> what, did you say? <laughs> what did you say about this as far as, you know, how are they going to police that? Yeah, and you know, it sounds crazy because one of my clients that brought this to my attention, first of all, I needed them to send it to me because it wasn't easily available just on the public website. So that's something that I think everyone needs to think about as well when you come to different consultants and ask these questions. We don't always have access to what's behind a provider portal. So it's important for you to be looking in those secure locations at policies as well, because we typically can only go in and pull out what's public facing on the website. Payers are always different with how they do that. Um, one of the things that's kind of driving me nuts with this is that I have the client asking, you know, what do we need to do now going forward? <laughs> and, and I paused and I'm like, well, do we need to say that the space was clean or do we just say that they were home or, you know, what do we do here? And, you know, one of the other things that just keeps really bothering me too, when we think about the workflow of a practice, we know that we cannot go to a provider and say, well, for United Healthcare, we're going to set you up with this macro statement. For CMS, you're going to have this macro statement. For Blue Cross Blue Shield, you're going to have a different one. So when I'm looking at things that are getting crazy like this, I'm trying to think, okay, what is going to be the best plan of attack for them to restructure what they allow as telehealth in the practice, and then also what those statements are going to be. Um, we still have all of the issues, and I think this is going to continue for a while, where people are still utilizing everything incorrectly. So if we know that they weren't even doing it correctly to begin with, we really need to think long and hard about what we're going to, going to suggest going forward. Um, one of the things I've thought of and, you know, maybe this is a little extreme, but I've had these conversations with my clients that maybe they need to start talking to the providers about not really allowing audio only. Um, I do have some clients who actually tell the patients if they can't connect on video, they're not doing telehealth, they have to come in the office. I don't know that that's the right answer for everybody, but when you think about the way that you have to utilize the other set of codes, um, you know, the way things are changing, this is just a really difficult space to be in, and we're really having to think outside the box at what everybody's requiring to hopefully simplify it, um, you know, to, to meet the masses, basically. 
Well, and Sean, can I add one more thing to that? Because this is something that's important to what Stephanie said. Remember, there was a CMS call on telehealth in March, and I, I have this quote sitting on my desk. I think I'm going to make bumper stickers. It said, discontinue use of waivers when no longer needed. And Stephanie just said that. I mean, Jean Moody Wilkes of CMS basically said, if you don't need that, don't do it. And I'm getting so much pushback from people saying, how come we can't do audio only for new patient visits. I'm like, well, first of all, it says you can't, that you have to follow the descriptor in CPT. And trust me, I'm having to really bring people to the table for that. But here's the other thing. The 95 modifier says audio and video synchronous. And Medicare is saying, still use that. Well, why are we using it if we put it on an audio only for payment parity to get the same money as the two through the 99214? But it doesn't make sense to do it. And it reminds me of something I said to my daughter, I don't know, last year or the year over, and she loves to make fun of me when I don't say something right. I said, don't forget, Sunday brunch is on Sunday. And she's like, Mama, okay, why would you say that? That doesn't make sense. Of course it's on Sunday. It's on Sunday. So why would you put a 93 modifier on a telephone code that says audio only? So, you know, if it says 93 and that says audio only, but the, <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying that it just seems like we have so much confusion as we're trying to roll this back. I had another client saying, hey, what do we do now with our pharmacists that we've been allowing to do EM services and face planning um, during the pandemic for uh, Medica Medicare or medicine management? I'm like, you did what? I see Paul face planning as well. And I know Scott's getting ready to bang his head. Well, I was we going to tell you, Terry. <laughs> I weren't allowed to do that. I had you're a client. To... Yeah, Sorry, let me just quit. You're, now you're only allowed to do the... Um, the discussion of the testing in 2020, they re they took that back <laughs> in 2021 after vaccines and said, no, that's no longer something you should be doing. And now people are telling me they build ENMs and PharmD do not have ENM under their licensure. So go ahead, Christine. It just it's crazy. No, no. Right? I mean, we could do this all day. I, I had one this morning that said, um, you know, another client that said, how are we going to bill the um, the lab reports when we, we call our patients back and we give them the results of our labs we've been doing it on telephone visits and i was like what yeah when would they come in they order the labs and then we call them with their results and we bill and i was like wait a minute that the, the telephone visit is not designed for that it's it's already included you got double dipping like i was losing my mind this morning of all the no 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 and no's well let me let me tell you okay so here's the deal, right? This is what the insurance companies are hoping for. They're hoping for mass confusion. Again, we talk about it all the time. This is a pay and chase industry. And there's absolutely no doubt that from the beginning to the middle through the end of the public health emergency, it was the Wild West when it came to the guidelines that were supposed to be followed. It was the originating site. Then it was use this place of service. Then it was use this modifier. Then it was audio only. Then it was synchronous. Then it was this. Then it was that. Listen, we, I, I agree, Jordan. You know, it, it's, it's moving goalposts. They continuously move the goalposts on us. And because they can, because it's a pay and chase model. And it allows them, it, it allows them to, you know, retroactively go after this money. Listen, you guys are talking about clients that are calling you and saying, oh, I was doing X, Y, and Z. Listen, 
I have clients that are calling us that have a $2.4 million demand from Cigna because they were doing car side evaluations of patients during COVID. Folks, not just the testing, like actual EM? No, they were doing oh, actual no. EM. Listen, you I saw remember. that with multiple clients. Yeah, we had that across the board. Listen, you, you got to remember how many states shut down everything. And the only way that patients could be evaluated was to go to one of these drive through centers. Now, let me tell you what's going on. Cigna, <coughs> excuse me, Cigna has misrepresented the CMS guidelines that stipulated that only a 99211 could be billed. No, a 99211 got billed if it was a simplistic evaluation which led to the collection of the specimen for a swab, which was basically, have you been exposed to anyone with COVID or do you have symptoms or signs of COVID? And if the patient said, no, I just want my swab, then it was a 99211. Or if they said, yes, I think I was exposed to somebody. Because think about it, during the public health emergency, Every single one of us, unless you and your spouse or your significant other and your children never left the house, you were automatically exposed to somebody who either had COVID or was exposed to somebody else who had COVID or was exposed to somebody with COVID. But remember, there were several where these drive-through centers were staffed by nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians who when a patient drove up and they said, yeah, I'm having respiratory distress. You know, I'm having a hard time breathing. I have a bad cough. I can't taste. I can't smell. Whatever it was, these providers did a full evaluation on the patient in their car. That's not limiting a, a provider to 99213. And if you read the actual CMS documentation guidelines, it said anything beyond this could be billed as a level two, three, four, or even a five. Think about how many of these drive-through facilities probably saved patients' lives by getting them to an emergency room where they got to the emergency room and they were given proper care, whether it was being admitted put into the ICU, put onto a ventilator, given medication, whatever it is. And now we have these, oof, these freaking insurance companies who are coming back and they are misrepresenting what the rules are. Folks, if it doesn't piss you off, it should. And you should be fighting to hold on to every dollar that you have been paid. And I swear to you, if you get that letter from Cigna or Aetna or United or Blue Cross, inundate my, my mailbox with it. I will fight on your behalf because what's right is right. And you getting paid for the services that your providers rendered during a public health emergency, you should keep that money. Now, uh, yeah. there's some bad actors out there. Scott, I'm going to come right to you. There's some bad actors out there who took complete advantage of the situation. And those are the ones that the government needs to focus on. But you do that by having clinical professionals with the requisite skill sets review these medical records to make a determination as to whether or not proper clinical judgment was rendered 
whether or not an appropriate history and exam were rendered to substantiate a two, three, four, or five service. And if not, those are the providers you go after. You don't target the good, hardworking, honest providers that save people's lives during this public health emergency. I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. Scott, go. No, I was going to say what's interesting about all of that to me is, you know, I've seen hundreds of car service notes in the last two, three years, probably thousands, actually. And the intensivity of a lot of these visits that are rendered to people in their vehicle, um, both from a documentation perspective, as well as the work of the provider, was often more than a lot of these other things that we're talking about, like telemedicine and phone calls and and labs and all this other stuff. And, you know, what I would say to people, and, and I think we've sort of talked about this, I mean, regulators regulate, that's kind of like their, their thing. And so it's no surprise to me that when all the curtains came down, when COVID first started, the first thing we would start to do is try to start to reconstruct them in various ways, right? So we see all these changes that sort of flow out. Well, we said you could do this, but now you need to document something else. Or we said you could do this, and now you need to document something else. And so now that we're in a state of a public health emergency ending, you know, you really need to revisit and reevaluate like all these policies and practices you started doing during COVID because somebody told you it was okay, whether temporarily or permanently, because you, you, you know, you shouldn't expect any grace from the payer, because as we're talking about with some of these cases, you know, people are not getting grace from the payer, even when they are doing things, you know, the right way. Um, you know, I sometimes have said to people in the past that it seems like our healthcare system is the foundation of our healthcare system is the collective mistrust everybody has for one another. And so we create these mountains of paperwork, essentially for everybody to sort of prove what they're doing. Um, But it does become the chicken and the egg, right? I think a lot of the crackdowns that we're going to see on things like telemedicine and audio visits, from the payer's perspective, they don't want to spend the additional money, they don't want to necessarily be paying for things that drive additional visits. And nobody's doing anybody else a favor in this industry on this side of it when we're saying things like, you know, we how do we bill for the phone call to give people their lab results? Because we started doing that during COVID and we want to keep doing it. There's no you know, you're not doing yourself any favors in terms of, you know, all the conversations we've had over the years. I know everybody on this line has had them about, you know, the providers lamenting the various things that they do that they don't get paid for. And when you start to push that in the other direction, you know you shouldn't expect anything else than than things to be clipped backwards, which frankly is probably, you know, what's going to happen anyway, now that the public health emergency is over. Much like we said earlier in the call with respect to, you know, hiring practices and how we treat people in the building and things like that. The, if the public health emergency is over, things should logically revert back to the way they were before. And there is going to be a process where we review all the different things that we did, the regulators do and decide what they're going to keep and not. But I don't think you should assume that you're necessarily going to get to keep anything that you were billing for during the PHE in the manner that you were billing it. Sorry, I went on a little rant there. No, listen, I think I think you raise great points. And I think because of the great inconsistencies that existed during the public health emergency, which made it the Wild West, I think, again, we're going to see a significant amount of these payers doing what they can to claw back money and it's up to the providers to fight it you can't roll over 
and just take it. When when I heard that, and when I heard that only five percent of providers who are not prevailing at level two are appealing to the ALJs, that's that's mind boggling. But here's the other thing, and I and I want to leave it at this, unless somebody else has some thoughts and comments, because I do want to go to the Signa modifier twenty five thing for just a minute when we're done. Um, if you build to a Medicare managed care, right? You know the ones advertised by J.J. Walker and Joe Namath. You get you get your free dental. You get your free transportation. You get your free meals. Folks, you ain't getting nothing for free, number one. Number two, Medicare Part C administrators like United, Aetna, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, they are not bound by Medicare Part B regulations. They are allowed to process and to adjudicate claims based on their own internal medical coverage policies and you know what that means if one don't exist they make it up yeah you, you get a free ride to the clinic you're just your heart surgery is not covered <laughs> that's right all right anybody else terry paul christine stephanie any final thoughts and then i want to move into this sigma modifier 25 thing because i really think this is going to be much more than what some folks have just kind of talked about. Any final say, thoughts? Yeah, I just want to say one thing that I noticed with a lot of people billing things still. And, you know, I've been in the industry over 30 years and I can't believe I still see this and have to say it. But you're not supposed to bill for things that you hope to get paid for. You're billing for things you expect to get paid for because it's a clean claim and because you know it's medically necessary. And when I mean what you hope to get paid for, it's like throwing spaghetti against a wall and hoping it doesn't fall off. So you, you have to be careful with that because, for example, you know, PPE, they'd already said they weren't covering that. That was part of your provider relief funding. Um, there was all kinds of things that people are, like what Christine was saying, for trying to get paid for test results when you already got paid to give the order in your ENM that started. And you never billed for that before the pandemic. Why are you doing it now? Well, because we can. Oh, my gosh. So the, the thing that you just have to be very cautious about, especially when you start getting denials, and again, with the No Surprise Act, that's always in the back of my mind, you have to be very cautious because if you start showing also not just a greater billing curve, but also for things you never did before or for things that are outside in your you know, targeted area for your specialty, but also um, more write-offs because you're not thinking that, well, that didn't get paid, so I'm going to write it off. If it's a non-covered service, that's a patient responsibility. It's not the same as it statutorily non-covered means a patient's responsible for it. You can't just write it off because you hope to get paid from an insurance company. Anything you send out means you want to get paid, period. And so this is where we, we have a lot of compliance risks. We're on the compliance guys, so I'll throw that out there. And you know, not having an understanding in your compliance program that we don't just bill for everything, um, that's definitely an, an issue. So. Can Paul just comment on that one at last time? Because I know that I know that him and I've had a conversation on that. What are you seeing on that, Paul? Just real quick. Well, you know, just just overall, because I really want to talk about the Cigna 25 modifier thing. Uh, I'm reminded of an old joke that's uh, somewhat scatological, but I won't give you the details. But, uh, you know, the punch 
the punchline is coffee breaks over back on your heads. Um, that's basically where we are now in the medical delivery system. It's like the coffee break that we got during COVID-19 is over and it's time to revert back to the way you did things before. Uh, if you were not billing for calls related to laboratory results in 2018, you should not be doing it in 2023 because there is no way to do that. And there wasn't any way to do that during the pandemic. Uh, you were stretching the bounds of what uh, free money was supposed to offer you. Uh, so, you know, coffee breaks over back on your heads. Okay. So Paul, let's, let's just set the stage real quick. So Cigna produced the modifier 25 policy. Okay. And this was put in place uh, a couple of months ago and just very quickly. Okay. Now remember this goes into effect on, uh, the 25th of this month. So 10 days from now, this policy becomes effective and will require the submission of documentation to support the use of modifier 25 when billed with an ENM codes 212 through 215 and a minor procedure. Now, it says Signal allows separate reimbursement for an evaluation and management service or office visit when reported in addition to a procedure on the same date if. The current procedural terminology or healthcare common uh, healthcare procedure coding system HICS fix ENM code 202 through 99499 and a procedure performed at the same patient encounter are individually and separately identifiable. The modifier 25 is appended to the disallowed ENM service code and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services National Correct Coding Initiative or Cigna defined edit allows a modifier override. Let me stop there just for a minute. Okay. So how, how concerning to the whole panel is that statement? If there's an NCCI edit or if there's a Cigna internal edit, folks, we call that a black box edit. Okay. I'm going to stop because I'm just so full of Monday piss and vinegar. I'm going to give it to Paul for just a few minutes. Okay. Well, first we need to talk about what Cygnus solution is to this, uh, because I am reminded of what happened in a very brief window of time after CMS got rid of consults in certain Mac jurisdictions where they said, you know what? We don't know what E&M service we're going to charge. So what you need to do is, Send us bill 99499 for an unlisted EM. Send us the documentation and we'll make a determination as to what that level of service is. Well, that lasted two weeks until they realized that their fax machines were running out of paper every 10 minutes. And they said, you know what? Bill it to the uh, most specific uh, place of service. Well, Cigna's really opening themselves up to uh, major IT costs for their fax machines because they're. Uh, Policy is, if you're going to use a modifier 25, you have to submit the medical records to a dedicated fax line through uh, Cigna Healthcare, and uh, we'll make a determination as to whether it's uh, useful or not. So I first became a certified coder 25 years ago, and I can't believe I'm uh, neither dead nor retired at this point. But we've known from the very beginning, since I was a certified coder, that the two 
problematic modifiers in the world are 25 and 59. And I think we've gotten to the point where it's been explained and explained and explained and commercial insurances with the power of their uh, data analysis and the power of their being publicly traded companies with billions and billions of dollars uh, in uh, safe somewhere have basically said, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. It's up to you to show me why there was an additional E&M service here. Now, notice that they only did established patient visits, and that's consistent with NCCI edits. Uh, you know, NCCI edits do not uh, preclude the use of 25 modifier with a new patient visit if you're doing a procedure that day. Uh, you know, the key thing that I always try to educate providers as far as the 25 modifier is, if they're coming in just for that procedure, bill just that procedure. Stop trying to find a reason to bill an office visit on the same date, okay? Uh, you know, unless there is a significant separately identifiable problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, and I think Cigna's jumping on this, but I encourage every single healthcare provider out there who has a Cigna contract, who believes that they are in the right by billing an E&M service with the procedure uh, to burn up that fax line, submit the records to them, give them what they want. Because uh, you know, uh, it, as we have seen many times in TV dramas and film and literature over the ages, sometimes getting what you want uh, is a pretty powerful uh, tool towards changing behaviors to uh, going back to getting what you need. I, I want to add you back off of that. So the other thing that I'm thinking about is uh, I have a client in Alabama and Cigna is a really big payer in Alabama also for managed care. And they, they use a lot of 25 and, and sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's not. I, I'll be the first one to tell you that. But what I'm concerned about is if we start to send in all of these documents for 25, not only does it hold up payment for both services, but the I, I'm almost fearful that the backlog is going to stop reimbursement of those payers of Cigna and the Cigna Medicare Advantage. And how is that going to affect the practice? Are practices ready for a screeching halt to reimbursement? whether it takes three months or six months to get through that volume of modifier 25 documentation, have, have the practices themselves thought about what they need to do to prepare for this, depending upon if it's a specialty a practice, whether they're doing a lot of modifier 25 because they've got to truly need to identify and address something significantly different, or if they're also doing minor procedures like an injection <clears throat> on that day that wasn't planned, have the practices really thought about what that financial impact might be? And if other payers jump on this bandwagon, as last year, many of them had alluded to, um, are we really prepared for that? Yeah. And I think the simple answer is no. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, agree, I think, but, you know, and, 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 and I say that credit be... at this point. Yeah. I, and I say that not to be flippant, but I agree with Victoria on this. You know, none of us should have high faith in what Cigna's doing. Again, look what happened with the the big, you know, scam with the algorithms that were, you know, created that have no merit or no basis. But to me, I think, look, 
there are some group practices out there who will struggle, but because they do fiscal planning, they have budgets, they, you know, they have rainy day funds, they take these things into consideration, they have lines of credit to be able to pull them through rough patches where there's a slow pay or something's going on. But I would say probably 95% plus of the one to three physician group practices don't actually have the ability to weather this storm. And I think right now, remember, United came out last year and they wound up retracting their policy. Blue Cross Blue Shield was sued, if you remember, under the Thomas Love case, and they had to settle that. But I do think all the payers right now, the commercial payers, are taking a wait-and-see approach as to just how wicked the backlash is. I know the American Medical Association um, you know, published an open letter to... Uh, Cigna, more than 100 physician groups have published letters to Cigna. Uh, I think it's going to be extremely interesting. So, Terry, I, I, I'm not able to open my my email right now, but I know you sent something via the Medicare rule. So and I'll publish yeah. it, you know, with everybody. Can you can you yeah. briefly share with us what it is in the last uh, few minutes we have? Yeah, it's in the CCI manual and it's actually under B and it's buried, but this is what people I think are reading and they don't understand it. The second paragraph of this, and it talks about the modifier 25. It says modifier 25 may be appended to the ENM service reported with minor surgical procedures with global zero or 10 days or procedures not covered by global surgical rules. Since minor surgical procedures and XXX procedures include pre-procedure, inter-procedure, and post-procedure work inherent in the procedure, the provider shall not report an ENM service for this work. Yeah. Furthermore, and this is scary, Medicare global surgery rules prevent the reporting of a separate ENM service for the work associated with the decision to perform a minor surgical procedure, regardless of whether the patient is a new or established. That's a conflicting policy. Yes, it, it is. Says, it says at the beginning, you can do it, but not if this exists and that always exists. And of I, don't course it the, I don't think the, the um, providers know the difference. What is Listen, pre there, there, inter and post work. There's a reason why when I'm in court and I'm addressing the jury, I will say to them, coding and billing is a game that the insurance companies are forcing providers to learn how to play. And just when you think as a provider, you have figured out the rules, that goalpost gets moved 10 yards further back. Paul, you were going to say something. Go ahead. Well, I want to point out uh, some other more benign uses of the 25 modifier. Sure. Uh, uh, and one of the big ones is vaccine administration. There's a bundle with uh, every established patient visit and vaccine administration. So, I mean, you know, obviously, if you're just coming in for a vaccine, just build a vaccine. But sometimes, uh, based on a conversation, that you have with your physician, you make a determination at that visit that you are going to have a vaccine. Uh, and it's not something that's been previously discussed. Uh, you know, uh, it's not something that uh, you might have been planning on, but it happens. And, you know, the the move is to put a 25 modifier on the E&M service in order for the vaccine administration to go through. 
You know, and sometimes you're only billing the vaccine administration because maybe your vaccines are being provided by the state and you're not billing for those vaccine codes. So uh, there are a number of things that I think Cigna has overlooked. And that's that's an NCCI edit that we can all see if we have coding software or if we do as the pioneers did and we download the spreadsheets from the CMS uh, website and say, oh, Okay, column one, column two, there they are. But we have no idea what the, you know, what are the black box edits? I mean, you know. <laughs> I Absolutely. Mean, yeah. All right. So real quick, before we um, say goodbye to everybody, uh, I would like to once again remind everybody uh, about the Tafito Rakib Foundation which is the official charity of the Compliance Guy podcast for the month of May. This is a wonderful, wonderful foundation doing amazing work for children with brain injuries. Um, if you've not had a chance to take a look at this website, please do. Um, this is a such a critical, critical charity. And uh, I'm just uh, honored that they would allow my program to be a part of this. All right. So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. As always, I want to thank our incredible uh, cast of characters, Scott Kraft, Christine Hall, Terry Fletcher, Paul Spencer, Stephanie Allard, for uh, spending some time with me and with all of you today. We had a great audience, great participation. Thank you so much for making us uh, part of your Monday routine. Uh, Terry and I will be back tomorrow with a hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. Uh, I'm sure we will have a pretty good one set up for you then. So until tomorrow, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.